I got uh, three men to tell you about from history, our brothers and forefathers that went before us, and then a just really short, simple encouragement for you. This first guy I want to tell you about is Harry Hoosier. He was born in 1750 as a slave in the South, in the U.S., and in his young adulthood, in his 20s, he was sold to a man in Maryland, and that man, his slave master, became born again at a Methodist crusade. Methodist preachers, the Methodist church today is a dying church because they've lost Jesus. But the Methodist church in the 1700s was full of fire and holiness and the power of the Holy Spirit. And John Wesley and Francis Asbury and some other names you may or may not know, but there were mighty, mighty men and women of God in the revival that was the late 1700s and early 1800s in England and America. And in one of these crusades, Harry's slave master got born again and he came home and set all his slaves free. Come on. A southerner gets born again instead of just religion and sets his slaves free. And so Harry was interested enough in what caused that, that he went to the Methodist meetings and got born again. And he somehow got connected with Francis Asbury, who in, the, in that day in America, Francis Asbury was one of the circuit riders who would ride his horse around all up and down uh, from state to state. He was the most famous preacher in America. And this man, who was known publicly as Black Harry, began to travel with Francis, and they preached. And at first, Francis Asbury would preach to the white congregation, and Harry Hoosier would preach to the black people outside under a tree. In the South, not even that was allowed. But in the North, uh, where Harry is free, he can travel around and and Harry's preaching was so powerful with lives being changed, people falling out under the power of the Holy Spirit, amazing transformations in people's lives that the white people would leave the white church and go to the black church under the tree outside to hear Harry preach. And they used a lot of language we wouldn't use now, but I mean, calling him Black Harry was not an insult. It was just... The people in the North didn't want to be racist, but just the thinking of the day was very, very different than ours. And, and it was a novelty to go and hear this black man. And then they found out that he was completely illiterate. He could not read or write a single word because he'd been born as a slave and they kept them intentionally completely uneducated. So he couldn't read his own Bible. He would just listen to Francis's sermons and collect the scriptures in his heart and then he, would, he wasn't repeating Francis' sermons. He was just preaching his own sermon by the power of the Spirit. The Quakers were so impressed with him that they thought he was literally possessed with the Holy Spirit and that he spoke by inspiration of God. He became so famous and so tra- wi- widely known that eventually Francis Asbury, who had been the most famous and widely known preacher in America, began using on his advertisements that they'd post around town, he would advertise that Black Harry was going to preach and more people would show up. 
than if he didn't say that, you know, there was this group. Dr. Benjamin Rush, who was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, said he was the best preacher in America. And Thomas Koch, who was John Wesley's right-hand man, traveled from England, and he wrote, I genuinely believe he is one of the best preachers in the whole world. Amazing power attends his speaking. More people, it is a verifiable mathematic fact, it can be calculated how many, how many years Francis Asbury and Harry Hoosier traveled back and forth from Florida to Maine. It can be verified through the numbers of the meetings that are recorded in Asbury's journal. More people knew Harry Hoosier than George Washington. This is in the exact same time period. Everybody would have known the name George Washington, but hardly anybody would have seen him except his men in the military and then his men in the government. Right? Harry Hoosier was hundreds times more known and famous than George Washington. But you've never heard of him. Have you? I mean, he's not in history books. And in fact, he had such a following of white people who would travel to hear his preaching like, like fan club that the people who were racist who wouldn't go hear a black man preach insulted these white people who liked black Harry. They insulted them by calling them Hoosiers. You've heard of Indiana called the Hoosier State. And Hoosiers is an insult. It means poor white trash. How that got attached to Indiana, nobody knows. But the name Hoosier was an insult from racist people toward real, true, born-again Christians who weren't racist. Just like the word redneck was originally a religious insult against Scottish Presbyterians. And both Hoosier and redneck kind of mean the same thing. Now, they've lost their religious connotations, but... But Harry Hoosier, one of the greatest men in American history, and you've never heard of him. I want to tell you about the next guy, John Morant. John Morant was born free in the North, but after his father died, his mother moved to Georgia. Now, why a free black family in the, in the 1700s would move to the South, I don't know. It was legal to be free, but it would have been exceptionally impossibly difficult to live in the South as free black people. He and a group of boys snuck into a church building with a bunch of horns and they were going to have fun by blowing these horns and disrupting the worship service. <laughs> and so these 13-year-old boys sneaks into the church. They're getting ready to blow their horns and he said, I just about put the horn to my mouth and we were going to blow this and it was going to be magnificently hilarious to disrupt the preacher, he said, just when I was about to blow my horn, the preacher pointed at me and he said, get ready to meet your God. He was quoting a scripture, but, the, but John Morant, 13-year-old John Morant thought he was talking just at them. He got so scared he passed out. <laughs> Drew the attention of the whole service. They brought him up front, woke him, brought, brought him to. He was trembling under the power of the Holy Spirit, and he got born again right there and saved. He was so, at 13 years old, he was such a Jesus freak that when he went home, his older sister kicked him out of the house. He's like, you cannot live here. Shut up about your Jesus. And he wouldn't shut up. So he'd left home at 13 years old, 
Um, his mom and his older sister would have nothing to do with him because he, was, he, he just wouldn't do or talk about anything but Jesus. He just wandered off and lived in the woods of Georgia where he was captured by a Cherokee brave. Back to the Cherokee village. And it, um, by those days, the Cherokees spoke very good English. And so John and his captor could communicate. They put him in a cage. He's, he's now 14 years old. And the chief sentences him to die. They're going to they're gonna kill him. And he said, at first I was terrified. And then I realized, I'm going to get to go be with Jesus. Why do I care if they kill me? 14 years old is thinking like this. But he's just, he's just so Jesus, 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 that he's talking with the guard that's guarding him in his cage. And he converts the guy to Jesus. And the guy gets saved. And he's like, the chief has to hear about this. And so he takes... John and his Bible, 14-year-old John and his Bible, to the chief of the local village, and John begins to tell him about Jesus, and the chief is hard-hearted, he's angry, he's, he's cursing this black man's God, and, but the chief's 16-year-old daughter runs and grabs the Bible and presses it to her cheek and holds it to her ear and runs around smiling and dancing, and the chief says, you take your spell off of her right now. He says, that's not my spell, that's the spirit of the living God. And the chief and his daughter were both saved. The chief was uh, of this particular local clan was so moved after his salvation that he said, all of the Cherokee nation must know who this God is. He said, I will send you with 50 braves because if we send you to the next village, they'll do the same thing that we were going to do. Too. They're just going to lock you up and, they'll, and then they'll execute you. So he sent him with 50 braves to introduce him to the next village and the next village. And at 14, 15, and 16 years old, for two years, he traveled to every Cherokee village in Georgia and Florida and presented the gospel. And hundreds of Native Americans got saved. Praise the Lord. There's more to his story, but that's all I want to tell you today. Third man, Lemuel Haynes, was born to a black father and a white mother in the north in Massachusetts, but... That was still extremely, that was a terrible rejection because his parents were not married. It had been adultery and it was biracial and that was a big no-no. And so at six months old, his mother had to give him away and he was not adopted but given to a Christian couple, a blind farmer and his wife in Massachusetts and he said for the rest of his life that that woman raised me like I was her own son. That even though I was a shame to my parents, that she loved me. And, the, and uh, the farmer and his wife saw to his education. And he was extremely intelligent. In his adulthood, he memorized practically the entire Bible. Had it memorized word for word. He could just read something and remember it. In his very early 20s, he served with General Washington. He was a Minuteman in the militia. He was not at Lexington and Concord, but he was at the next battles um, where he fought with, with Washington's men. And then at, in, all during the Revolutionary War. And then after the Revolution, he decided to become a pastor, a preacher, and, and a writer. And he spent... His time preaching and writing the scripture and the gospels, but also the abolition of slavery. There were some people in the 1700s that were against slavery, 
President John Adams was very vocally against it, um, called it a, a scourge on the nation. But even the white people in the North uh, just sort of saw it as something that happened in the South and we don't know what to do about it. And they saw that it was wrong, but didn't do too much to fight it, sort of like abortion today. Um, but Lemuel Haynes preached the abolition of slavery and freedom, and it affected his writings. He became the first black, the first ordained preacher in America who was black. He became the first published author in the United States who was black. He argued that slavery denied black people their natural rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, he's the, the first one to, to publicly argue that African Americans needed full citizenship rights that everyone else had. He wrote that liberty is equally as precious to a black man as to a white one, and a bondage is equally as intolerable to one as it is to the other. He preached all of his life. He was not an activist. He was just a pastor and an author, but that was his message his entire life. And he wrote his own epitaph for his gravestone, and his children, at his request, put this on his stone, and you can go read it still today in Massachusetts. Here lies the dust of a poor, hell-deserving sinner who ventured into eternity trusting wholly on the merits of Christ. In the full belief of the great doctrines that he preached while on earth, he invites his children and all who read this to trust their eternal interest to Jesus Christ. A few years later, when the United States was 40 years old, a historian was interviewing, the founding fathers had begun to grow elderly and die, and a historian decided, we need, to, we need to write the history of what happened during the Revolutionary War and the founding of America and the birth of our nation, and went to John Adams as an elderly man, John Adams, our second president. He said, he said where did you get the ideas of freedom and liberty and the pursuit of happiness and freedom of speech and freedom of religion and and all that, and, and the author was expecting to hear, well, Thomas Jefferson and great minds like Benjamin Franklin and John Locke and the famous philosophers, and John Adams said, Lemuel Haynes. He named a few others also, but this preacher at a small church in Massachusetts and Connecticut and a couple other places who just preached the gospel and preached freedom and wrote a couple books and the men that we call the Founding Fathers said it, it was all his idea. But you've never heard of him. You've heard of Thomas Jefferson. You've heard of Benjamin Franklin. You've heard of George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and I doubt if you've ever heard of Lemuel Haynes. Anybody read any of these three men in your history books, in history class? I don't think so. Yeah. All right. So... What do I want to draw out of this for you? I want you to notice that God does amazing things in obscurity. World-changing people, world-changing events, eternity-defining relationships happen in the tiniest churches, in the tiniest towns in Northeast Oregon. Come on. God 
always is doing more than you know. You didn't know he did any of that. You just knew about some of the results of it. And you know that the world doesn't know what you're doing, right? Your prayers in the night, your fastings, your serving your family and loving your coworkers and sharing the gospel at school. The world doesn't know any of that. So you don't know that times seven billion. Right? I mean, you're totally unaware of what God is doing in some person's life in Baker City, much less in Peoria or New York City or Timbuktu. Like, God is doing way more than we know. Bill Johnson said in a recent sermon, if, all, if you spend more time paying attention to the news media and the entertainment media than you do in the Word of God and the Spirit of God, your anxiety is self-inflicted. Stop paying attention to the news because it doesn't know the truth. Fox News does not know what God is doing. CNN does not know what God is doing. Pay attention to what God is doing and you will find out there's billions of people out there doing great things in obscurity. God is doing so much times billions that we have, we have no idea what all he's doing. So you are serving him in obscurity and so are most others. And we can look at the big famous authors and preachers that have their YouTube channels and, and their book deals and, and their bajillion dollar churches and their worship sets look like a concert and I'm like, oh, no, those are the people that are really making a difference and those are the ones that are famous and they travel the world and they speak at all the big conferences and that is so little of what God is doing. So that most of the world doesn't know about your obedience and so you don't know about most of everybody else's obedience. There is so much going on. And obscurity doesn't stop what God is doing. In fact, he, I, I'm absolutely convinced he does it on purpose. Number two, I want you to notice that God does what he does in, in danger and deprivation, in insult and rejection. Harry Hoosier, born a slave, completely illiterate. I mean, come on. Come on. Come, can't read or write a single word. I mean, some of you have problems and think you're dumb. You're not that bad off. If God can use Harry Hoosier, God can use anybody. Like, there's no excuse I don't know enough. There is no excuse I haven't read enough of the Bible. He didn't read any of it. He just listened and then lived it in his own heart and then preached it, and it was full of Holy Spirit and power. God <laughs> loves to show off the power of his grace, to use the most unlikely suspects. Paul says, he saved me because he wanted to show how extreme his mercy is. Well, I've got Paul beat. I need more mercy than, than Paul did. John Morant, as a 14-year-old, locked in a cage in an Indian village, stops his own panic and just begins to talk about Jesus. Come on, God loves to use the outcast 
the biracial man who has an absolutely no prospects in either community. He's a reject by both groups, who's given up by his parents by force at six months old, and raised well, treated well, but not adopted. I mean, there, there are just no excuses, folks. There, we just don't have any excuse that my life is too hard, or I don't know enough, or I've been too hurt, or no one would listen to me. Just keep obeying God today. And tomorrow you wake up and you obey God today. And the next day you wake up and you obey God today. And you just and you have absolutely no idea that you are, well, there's no maybe about it, you're changing the world. You have no idea. You have no idea what you're accomplishing until we get to the end and look back and see all what God was doing. Don't ever use an excuse that danger or deprivation or insult or rejection or I don't know enough or any of that. Another thing I want to point out to you is that some of these guys, they had no present hope of change in their situation. Harry Hoosier is born a slave, has no hope of becoming anything other than a slave. I'm going to live and I'm going to work the cotton fields and I'm going to die. And God made him literally like the second most famous man in America because he preached the gospel. You just don't know. You just don't know that your situation might change. And Lemuel Haynes died not having seen change to the situation. He's one of the original abolitionists, writing and thinking and preaching about a cause that most white people didn't care about. And many of them not only didn't care, they would have hated him for it. And there's absolutely no hope of change, physically, naturally, politically, or spiritually. There is no hope for change. And truly, literally. Except that in like three generations, God is going to do something. But Mr. Haynes, your sermons are the seed. Your sermons to this obscure little nothing church of 50 people who can't do anything about it, you just preach the sermon and you're speaking into the universe. And you write your book and it gets published and five people read it. But those five people multiply and spread on and pretty soon somebody like Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and Benjamin Franklin knows what you thought. And they have the political clout to make it happen. Come on. John Quincy Adams is John Adams' son. John Quincy Adams is our fifth or sixth president. Um, that kid was absolutely amazing. At 14 years old, he's our ambassador to Russia. <laughs> he was such a genius. Spoke multiple languages. I was just crazy. His dad actually made him the official ambassador to Russia and sent him off. <laughs> uh, anyway, later he becomes president. He was a very outspoken abolitionist. He hated slavery. He campaigned on it in, in a day when that was death sentence to your politics if you were even in the north if you were if you were going to say you were going to fight to end slavery it was politically okay to say you were against it but to do anything about it we don't want to we don't want to change the status quo um, john quincy adams was an abolitionist he his heart was broken about it he was he prayed about it he worked it, but nothing was going to move nothing was going to move nothing was going to move and in his old age he found this very young, early 20s guy who had some ambition, and his name was Abraham. And his last name was Lincoln. 
And John Quincy Adams took this 20-something punk who knew nothing and had no prospects. He poured his heart and his mind into Abraham Lincoln. And then he died. I mean, John Quincy Adams died not seeing anything change. He arrives in heaven and God says, turn around and watch this. Look what I did with your obedience. You have no idea what your great-grandkids are going to accomplish if you will just obey today. Regardless of how hopeless the situation is, regardless of how, how impossible the change may be, you mentor, you disciple somebody. Do not look for mass ch- solutions. Public solutions, mass change solutions never work. And the people who try to do them are satanic. We're not looking for mass change to society and solutions and culture. We are looking to change one individual heart at a time, times millions. But you can't do millions, but you can do one, and then the next, and then the next. And I also want to draw out how, how su- naturally supernatural these men are. None of them talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. None of them preach miracles. They just preach Jesus and miracles happen. Their lives are spared. Miraculous provision comes. Dramatic, wild, big events happen around them. Thousands of people getting saved or maybe just a few people saved. But, but a nation is birthed as they're just faithful to Jesus. So... The word for today is influence. I can't do anything about the state of the world, and neither can you. We can't change Russia or China or fentanyl or abortion or divorce or, or any of the other world's problems. But I have a neighbor whose girlfriend moved out on him yesterday, and his heart is broken. So last night I can send him a text telling him that I care. Please don't do anything stupid. I'm not a counselor, but if you want to talk, I'll make myself available. Care about them both, and I know their hearts are broken, and let's just start with that. Let's just give them Jesus. Let's just let them know that somebody cares and give them Jesus, and I'm going to invite him next week. I don't know if he'll come, but if he does, God might get a bridle on him. So I, we, can't, we cannot do anything about the state of the world and the, and the big problems, but, but you just do your work in obscurity. You genuinely love your coworkers and take care of them in Jesus' name. Genuinely love your classmates. Quit being a chicken. Start speaking up about Jesus in school. Not dictating preaching, but loving people. You, you can't do anything about all of the troubles of the world, but, but you could take in a foster child, maybe. You could share Jesus with your neighbor over the back fence. You could maybe fast a day or two a week and give that extra money to missions. You could set an alarm 15 minutes early and Pray for our missionaries. 
I don't know. Don't ever think, well, I can't accomplish anything, so I'm not going to try anything. God does amazing things through obscure people's everyday obedience. Influence. Take somebody under your wing, a baby Christian or a non-Christian, and, and disciple them. Just like, okay, good Lord, before you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be responsible for this person's life. I'm going to care about them. I'm going to take care of them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep sharing them Jesus. Maybe that will be easy and maybe it will be excruciating. And maybe it will be convenient and maybe it will be the worst inconvenience of your life. But you have to take care of somebody. If you have a vision, if you have a burden, if you have an idea, but you don't see what you want to happen happening, pour that into somebody who's younger than you and watch God grow that seed. Amen? J.R.R. Tolkien, who was a Catholic believer, a, a true believer in Jesus, he puts this quote in the mouth of one of his characters in the story, but he says, it's coming from Tolkien. He said, some believe it's only great power that can hold evil in check, but that is not what I have found. It is the small everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay, small acts of kindness and love. And so let's make this an official sermon by actually including one Bible verse today. This is what Jesus said when he said this, Matthew 10, 42, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Come on, Jesus is shockingly gracious. And he said, if you in my name serve anyone even to give a child a cup of cold water in real Jesus love, I don't know why that would be necessary, but the smallest act that you do in real love because you love Jesus or because this person needs Jesus, Jesus is like, there's reward for that. You're accomplishing something. Amen. Lord, I thank you so much for your beautiful, simple encouragement that we don't need great power, great influence, the world calls fame and followers and subscribers and crowds and all the things that the, the world grasps for and so much of the church grasps for, Lord. Thank you for your simple encouragement that we just need to be obedient every day in where you have us to be, in our school, in our workplace, in our church, in our family. And as we serve you in everyday acts of love and kindness, in the name of Jesus, that you are creating eternity. Lord, I pray that you would envision every soul here for the importance and the value and the eternity of what you have each individual one of us doing and what you have us doing collectively as a church congregation, Lord, that, that we're not just spinning our wheels, we're not just doing our meetings, we're not just obscure, but that you are forming eternity in us and through us. I bless every person here with great joy and great faith and willingness for great sacrifice to serve and obey you 
in naturally supernatural ways as they go about their day and take care of the needs that present themselves that you will move. You are too good to not believe. Lord, we bless your holy name. Amen.